Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020, where it then shrivels up into dust. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And Chris. And we are starting relatively late tonight, but that's probably okay. Are any of us some kind of cursed nightwalkers? Depends on what you mean by that. Answer very carefully, Tori. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see, are you cursed? Uh, well, I couldn't find my car keys for an hour. Does that count? Yes, that counts. All right. And are you nocturnal? Hmm, are dogs nocturnal? I guess they Uh, are if they, they are if they need to be. My impression is that dogs either sleep all day or they never sleep, depending on the dog. They actually, they're neither diurnal nor nocturnal. They sleep when it's most convenient or necessary. Oh. Like soldiers. Yep. (laughs) They're very good soldiers. All right. Well, you know, I'm not sure any of that was really applicable for today because we're talking about Vampire Hunter D. And those vampires don't seem vulnerable to sunlight. Exactly. I mean, they don't die. That's a good point. But don't they mostly only show up during the day or during the night? I mean, yeah, that's what that whole plot point with the like time affecting candle thing was about, I guess. Time bewitching incense. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. was supposedly. So I've looked up some like summaries of the book, which is probably Uh how I know a little bit more about this. But I guess the idea is that it makes day, night, and night, day for a vampire. Okay. They must get more power at night or something, right? Well, I mean, that's that's just like the actual original Dracula novel, right? Mm-hmm. He was just kind of more more active during the night. That's yeah, about no, it. I, I, I don't think that, <clears throat> pardon, I don't think that sunlight like killed him or anything. It wasn't like <laughs> light on fire and go poof. Though not like Buffy, but I don't know. I don't remember for sure. Well, certainly in a lot of movie versions of Dracula, what ends up killing him is the light of the dawn, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Th- this reminds me that when I was doing the preparation for this today, I decided to watch a little bit of the you know nineteen eighty five Vampire Hunter D movie, and I found a copy, um, like the English dub on YouTube. And it was hosted by some, like, you know, vampire, like, people identifying as vampires side thing. And, you know, I'm not going to judge people identifying as vampires in a general sense. But on the link, mm-hmm. like, uh, on the the description, it was like, oh, if you if you want to be more like D or the nobility, you know, follow this link, check out this information. And I was like, if you want to be more like the nobility, fuck you. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Also, that's <laughs> either one or the other. They're conceptually opposed concepts. D doesn't seem to very much like the nobility, just as a general principle. Right. Right. I, that's kind of and his maybe, thing, is going around killing them. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, even in the title, one would say. I guess it's possible <laughs> that they meant, like, qualitative like in terms i don't know not in terms of personality right 
Right. Not in terms of the kinds of things that you get up to. Wait, I imagine wait, wait, going wait. around killing so... other vampires is also frowned on in the vampire community. <laughs> uh, you never know. You know, being predatory <laughs> in nature, the strongest survive, right? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the point is, Vampire Hunter D, why are we talking about it? Let me explain. I have exactly one old anime fanzine in my possession, and I've drawn from this well before uh, to do a Mobile Suit Gundam fanfic with a couple of my friends a while back. That was the Everyone Excels at Something episode. But anyway, this zine that I have is Anime House Presents, issue one, from 1988. And the thing about this zine is that it is award-winning. It won a FanQ award for, in 1989, if that's the Fan Quality Awards, for, you know, best zine in the Japanese animation category. I have a feeling there was not a whole lot of competition back in 1989, but that's okay. In addition... (laughs) This particular story won Best Short Story in the Japanese Animation category. And the artist for this story, Nemo Han, won Best Artist in the Japanese Animation category. So I've been meaning to get around to this story for a long time, just because it's like basically kind of triple or at least two and a half, you know, award winner from 1989. And yeah. this and being... Oh, I was just going to say, this being a week when Dom is, you know, temporarily not going to be recording with us, I just decided to pull Chris because, Chris, you're one of my main, like, people for when I want to talk about something random, and I just figure you'll be up to it. Um, I'll take that to mean that you find me to be flexible rather than just simply to be slotted in anywhere you please. (laughs) Both. Both those things. Oh, okay. Well, you know, um, good and bad works i I, i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) so in other words thanks for coming on to talk about vampire hunter d yeah no problem do any of us have any actual history with this (laughs) well chris and i had a a fun time watching the 1985 movie a few i don't know what last week um i did watch it as a kid but i was more like horrified by it than anything I think I was 12 or something, and I was just like, uh, now I can really appreciate the visuals, if not so much the plot. Mm-hmm. I only... can see how it could be horrifying for a 12-year-old. Just a lot of blood and guts. It, I was just like, Honestly, uh, I could see how it could be horrifying for a 30-year-old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's like, it's one of those things where, like, there were definitely parts where I was like, nope, 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 nope. But it doesn't give me that same sort of, like, I don't know, nightmare terror that I did as a kid. It was one of those things where it's like, I don't I don't know why people like this. I don't ever want to see it. And now I'm like, no, I can appreciate it. I, this, this is definitely coming from the era of um, Western anime fandom when you watched what you could get, right? You, you weren't mm-hmm. like picking and choosing. It was like, what do can we even get over here to watch? Vampire Hunter D, great. Let's watch that. Um, but I can also kind of appreciate, you know, it's, it's also one of those things where if you're coming from Western animation, you're like, you can make an animation like this. That's like extremely dark and brooding. And, you know, someone stabs the other person in the stomach and they both get stabbed in the stomach. Like this is allowed. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the weird thing, like coming from watching stuff on Toonami, 
And then you go to the video store and you find these these tapes and you're just like, whoa, this like this is a whole world here. Like there's more than just Gundam Wing. To be fair, Gundam Wing is not all that kid friendly either. A good point. The fact that it was shown to a young audience. Uh, lots of politics and corruption and child assassins. Yeah, yeah. You need to get that horror of war in there early. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly I appreciated that element, but this is about Vampire Hunter D, so... <laughs> yeah, and speaking of, you know, that whatever's available at Blockbuster on VHS, you know, angle, um, once I was looking into it, though, this this fanfic came out in 1988. You know, Vampire Hunter D came out in 1985, uh, the anime version, right? And it didn't reach the U.S. in an official release until the early 90s. Like, it was like 92 or something. Oh, and yeah. so I was kind of, I was kind of wondering, like, were VHS fan subs being distributed at this point? Or like, I don't know, I don't know my early anime history well enough at that point. Or were people, you know, getting non-subtitled laser discs or, you know, VHSs or whatever, and then following along to a printed summary that they got in some other zine or something, which I know also happened to some extent. Yeah, um, that wouldn't surprise me. Though I do remember there was a, a video store that was an Asian video store um, when I was a kid and used to be able to find all sorts of like subtitled anime in there or even not subtitled. And it was like, I wonder if there's stores like that existed too, where it wasn't geared towards a Western audience, but you could find it in your city, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, Chris, did you watch this? Did, did you watch Vampire Hunter D as a kid? Uh, I never saw it when I was younger. This was sort of my first exposure to it. My only other um, like tenuous connection to this is that I find Yoshitaka Amano's artwork, have always found Yoshitaka Amano's artwork to be extraordinarily beautiful. So mm-hmm. that he did the character designs for this uh, was always sort of something that I knew about uh, vaguely, uh, sort of in the sphere of all of the other things that Yoshitaka Amano had done. Yeah. Amano's and really he... cool as an artist, and it's interesting that he does so much work that gets adapted to things like Final Fantasy or, you know, this anime or whatever, because, you know, he he does these character designs that just you know, the game creators or anime, you know, artists or whatever are just like, we can't draw this. And, you know, they have to get so simplified in order to be usable by other people in anything other than, like, you know, the kind of beautiful Amano full-page art kind of thing that he does, right? Totally. What I, what I appreciate, though, is I feel like everyone wants to evoke the beauty of his art. So, like, it, particularly in Vampire Hunter D, I noticed there were really pretty watercolor backgrounds and a lot of, like, you know fluid motions and focus on like spindly hands so it's like they're trying to make it elegant while simplifying the character design Mm -hmm. and certainly elements of the way that the characters were drawn in Yoshitaka Mano's artwork end up in how they're presented um a lot in how things are uh there's a lot of scenes which utilize very dark shadows and oh, yeah, yeah. these sort of very um, striking visuals, striking lines, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think they had a good team working on, on this. But uh, did you watch this back in the day, Vampire Hunter D. Hamano? Never. It was just 
kind of before my time in terms of the you know, anime fandom caring about it. Or, you know, I came in when there were too many other options, I guess. And so I was aware of it as a title, you know, for a, since a young age or whatever, but just never saw it. Mostly I remember when Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust came out. And, you know, it was kind of a big deal because it was a second Vampire Hunter D thing. And I had never seen the first one, so I just ignored it and never watched it at the end. <laughs> but Yeah, a lot of I people did, were into it, but... <laughs> yeah. I did recently read the manga adaptation of, you know, this first Vampire Hunter D story. And hmm. it's it's not by Amano, but the, the manga artist gets to kind of draw a little bit more, I feel like, on those sorts of compositions. It was fairly pretty. Yeah. It's funny because now it's like a it's a novel series turned into a movie turned into a manga. How deep does this rabbit hole go? I think That's... the manga is also theoretically just based on the first light novel. Oh, okay. you know, it's <laughs> splitting off. Makes sense. I mean, that's not a terribly uncommon fate for uh, IP in Japan these days. Starts. Yeah, I'm as not good point. A I'm light not impressed novel in or a novel. Right. I'm not impressed until you start getting manga based on the Evangelion Pachinko machines. Uh, <laughs> what would the plot even be? It's about Explain. people playing Pachinko. <laughs> oh, okay. It'd be about <laughs> the Evangelion characters playing Pachinko. The Evangelion characters show up occasionally to like talk to the person, and it's very strange. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They I, would I like, exist in a manga in cafe the world. once. Yeah. <laughs> I, or maybe they're hallucinations. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But let's get back to this fanfic. It is by right, Julie, right. Julie Froelich, um, I believe, or, you know, something long Fro- Froelich, I guess. And, you know, because this was back in the day when people just published under their own name. Um, and you can find a link to the scan that I'm putting up online at bit.ly slash rule. That's R-U-L-E. And why don't we hop into the content and start talking about what this story is about. Yes, or maybe who this story is about. Who or what? Who is this story about? It's about a minor character from the movie Ray Ginsei. Ray something. Ray Ginsei. It's it's Ginsei. I I, I don't mean to emphasize that you have to say Ginsei. I mean, like, as opposed to you might want to say Ginsei or something, Mm -hmm. but but it's Gin. Alright. And yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that the author chose to focus on him, and this story is, in broad strokes, it's just kind of a prequel to the movie explaining how this guy ended up in the service of the Baron. Yeah. And I kind of get the wanting to focus on him because he there's very little of him. And one thing I did notice in the movie is, like, I'm like, he's the subordinate of the girl whose name I forget. But then at one point he really talks back to her and I'm like, how does he get away with that? Mm-hmm. They don't really go to explain that, but also his character design is probably the best. Like his hair is great. So yeah. definitely yeah. a lot of elements of David Bowie trod on in his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hadn't placed that, but it is very Bowie-esque, isn't it? And since we're talking about, um, Ginsei or Ray or whatever we're going to be calling him, and uh, what's her name? The the vampire Ramika, I think, is how it is translated. Right. So in Japanese, it would have been Ramika, and Lamika. so Ramika, whatever, it doesn't matter. Lamika, whatever we want to say. Sure, her. Um, 
I just like to say the very first thing you see in this story is a very nice piece of art. Once again, this artist, you know, got a fan quality award. Uh, must have been a very early Western fan doing like, you know, manga style artwork, right? Yeah, I like the art a lot in this um, because it's it's like exactly what you said. It's like the heads are too big for the bodies, but the bodies are like articulated in a way that feels very Western and like the way the musculature is emphasized. It's almost like that combo art, like a Western artist trying to use their style and adapt it into an anime or manga style. Yeah, it feels like the kind of art you would see in, like, old, you know, non-D&D role-playing books that were trying to, like, channel this kind of thing, like old Palladium books or something. Um, yeah. But there's only a few pieces of art in this story, and I think the title, the artwork there with the title is the best of them. I think it it's really nice. It's got some cool, like, lighting effects and, like, abstract shapes of darkness going on between the two figures, and the ray in particular, I feel like, is looking really good there. I agree. I mean, that one, the one, that illustration in particular, I was like, oh, is that just like a, a scan? Like, is that actually the artist's work? I was like, oh, yeah. And then you look at, actually, my favorite is the last one. I think there's only three, but the last page where it's like his arms are the wrong length and his head's gigantic, but it's like, and his legs are super skinny and they don't even seem to have knees. But it's so like that evocative element of this is the proportions I'm trying to go for. And I love how they did the musculature in it, too. It's very ropey and angular. And it looks like he's got bones sticking out the top of, like, sticking up from the top of his shoulders. I just love it. It sounds like a lot of criticism. Yeah. No, (laughs) I wasn't, it's not, it's stylized. I think it's done very deliberately. And that's what I like a lot about it. It's a a bit weird because I actually. To some extent, you might be right. (laughs) Yeah. I actually liked the, the, um, picture, the illustration in the middle more than the, the other two. <laughs> yeah, so we all sort of arrived at different... I just thought that, uh, you know, it's a picture of Ray sort of uh, sitting in... The dungeon. Yeah, yeah. the Oubliette area where, where uh, he starts the story. Uh, and I thought the posing was, was honestly pretty well put together in it. He's got his face half-shadowed. He's got a very intense look. Yeah, the pose is good. The foreshortening is weird. But I also kind of yes. like that, too. <laughs> Maybe I like it when things are just a little bit off, because it's like, you know, the, what's that word for the imp- imperfection that makes something beautiful? Anyway. <laughs> I don't know that word, but... I think it's a Japanese concept, but I'll, I'll remember later. Anyway, yeah. maybe we can talk about the story, too. Yeah, I guess we can. The yes. story starts with Ray, like we kind of indicated, in the dungeon of the Baron's castle. He's with this guy named Rig. And, um, they're trapped. They, they kind of like were, I mean, why exactly were they trying to go there in the first place? Like, um, Rig was what, trying to vampire slay, I guess? He's like a, you know, crappy hunter compared to some others we could name. Yeah, compared to the one other we can name. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Ginsei for Re- or Ray, we should call him Ray. Ray, for reasons that we'll get into later, has kind of been roped into going along with him. But they they apparently just kind of like fell into a pit trap immediately because they're not good D&D players. And they're sort of like, um, I don't know if it's exactly a pit trap, but like they, they were, you know, they were trapped immediately and kind of being like left in this, um, 
They're stuck in this hole. Oh, yeah, a hole in the rotted flooring. Yeah, basically. They're down in yeah. the hole, is the idea. It's kind of revealed later in the story that it was like Ray was really dragged into this by this guy, Rig, who doesn't seem to exactly know what he's doing. Like, he has an idea, but he's he's not doing it very well. And Ray is a mutant, um, like X-Men-style mutant, except in a, you know, apocalyptic future. Um, and he can do some kind of spatial manipulation and telekinesis stuff. And he he talks a lot about kind of like teleportation in this story. Does he actually do that in the movie? Like move his whole body from one place to another? I was trying to remember because that seems to be his main power in this. Yeah. Does that happen in the movie? Um, not to my recollection. He does have some sort of he has um powers of space warping, and that is something that he does do. But he doesn't specifically teleport, to my knowledge. Yeah. Moves quickly, certainly. I kind of thought he was just a vampire in the movie. It's, it's he's not a vampire in the movie. He's not a vampire. Okay. It's actually a point of his character that, like, he wants to become a vampire and goes to oh, right, the Baron right. Magnus Lee to uh, request, because he defeated D, he requests that he makes him into a vampire. That was a right. I remember character. that now. I, I guess, in my mind, I was thinking, like, all the other mutants are physically different from the the nobles and the humans right they have something weird going on he just looks like a human with crazy hair you know, well see like that's the, the difference between do. an that's the difference between an x-men supporting character and an x-men protagonist right of course do you have some sort of like physical mutation or do you have a super awesome superpower and otherwise look hot <laughs> i think that at worst be. blue fur yeah, might be a little bit unkind to X-Men protagonists, but only a little bit. <laughs> There's a few patterns that you see in X-Men, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't become a main character by not being hyper-attractive, right? <laughs> I mean, Deadpool would like to disagree with you, but I can't think of many other counterexamples, so... Fair point. Not, no, but not much of an got... X-Men protagonist. <laughs> People are attracted uh, to Deadpool, Deadpool because of his personality. Deadpool would you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Anyway. So the thing is, this story proceeds from the being trapped, you know, in a hole down in like this, this castle. But it also does a lot of various flashbacks. And about halfway through the fanfic, we're kind of just like in the present day plot thread for the rest of it. In the first half, it's jumping around a lot, and it's a little bit confusing. So rather than going scene by scene, I kind of want to talk about a few of the plot threads that are happening here. Sure. For one thing, we've got a, you know, kind of childhood trauma backstory for Ray that we are given. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Um, I guess he was abused for a lot of his youth, and then... Like, when he his powers finally manifested, he was trying to escape from being abused, and he, he shifted himself through the floor. And then after that, like, I guess it was his father? Who was it? Or his stepfather? Anyway. Well, the father figure that was around, there's sort of an implication, or Ray sort of has come to the conclusion that uh, his... Uh, biological father was someone who was 
mentioned to him in the form of a story by his mother. Oh, right. Which is a uh-huh. one of the other a, another little bit of a plot thread, but only a very short one because it only relates this small sort of fairy tale story, uh, which uh, Ray has sort of concluded is about his mother meeting his biological father. Right. Yeah. So there, the the story does jump back and forth quite a bit. So I think that's why it may be hard to piece things together sometimes. I eventually figured out that all of these were about Ray, but I wasn't quite certain at first. I was like, are we talking about different characters sometimes? Uh, but right. anyway, once his, uh, I don't know, father figure realizes he's a mutant, he basically tries to kill him and then he has to run away. So that's his whole upbringing story. Right. And... To summarize, then we've got another set of flashbacks that are more recent flashbacks, um, where Ray is serving as basically a soldier, right? Yeah. Certainly he's mentioned as having a company, and uh, you get a reference in one of the other plot threads about him, him having had soldier gear on him later on flashback. And it so. seems like he's working for a noble, not this noble. Right? It's a bit unclear. Certainly, he has a noble title. Although, <laughs> uh, in sort of the story in the current, or in the, the most time forward, most current, uh, thread, he mentions vampires as being sort of something which you try your hardest to avoid. So, that sort of implies that he wasn't working for one previously. Although, who knows? I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's a little unclear. We, when we say noble, of course, this is Vampire Hunter D, where, like, the, no, the nobles, the nobility, are, like, the vampires who have been ruling the world for a really long time, but they're on the decline now. Um, and so, and humans are kind of, like, pulling together a little bit more and maybe, you know, building up their civilization a bit. And so it's also plausible that this is some sort of like noble nobility in the sense of like being a, you know, ruler jerk person who is not a vampire. I don't know. It's not, it's not made totally clear, but it's also not really important. It's more just like kind of that he's, um, he's enforcing the will of some like, you know, land holding ruler type person who crushes communities that defy him right yeah basically I, it was interesting like this that when they first bring up his soldier past um the one thing that was confusing to me was too like they they're all mutants these soldiers um and when they come into this town there's this big narrative about how um none of the sex workers there want to sleep or they've charged more to sleep with them and that's I don't know. That's a lot of what that part is about is like the different sex workers they sleep with. And then also, I know a little bit about what it's like. No, I mean, not really. You're right. It's not. I'm looking at Chris's face. Um, <laughs> not really, but it's very focused around that as kind of the frame because at the very end of that is when like he has to leave because he finds out something while he's in bed with one of the women. Right. Which is that. A lot of, like, the people who were back in the barracks, most of the company have been poisoned for political reasons that I didn't quite follow. It, this first half of the fanfic, like, some of the threads, I just, like, didn't quite get it. But I feel like, to some extent, you don't need to get all the details. You're just kind of getting, like, the gist of 
the sorts of experiences this guy has been through. Uh, that's fair, but uh, my take on it was that there was another noble who may or may not have been a vampire who was aiming to destroy their faction, their company at least, um, for reasons. Maybe it's because they're hated because they're mutants. Maybe it's for some other reason. Who knows? Uh, but certainly it's mentioned that they take their revenge on him at the very end, very briefly in one line, and then they go on their uh, way, evidently being somehow hunted at that point. Yeah, they're the only two left in the company at that point, right? Because the rest of the company gets killed. Yes. Right. Him and his friend, who I don't remember. Rose, I believe, was the name. Yes, Rose, yeah. Not that he shows up any other place, so it's not terribly important. We get a brief physical (laughs) description that's like his hair was tied in a ratty ribbon like it always was, and then he disappears and never shows up again. Like, I want to know about that ratty ribbon. Like, what's the story there? Uh, Well, that would be a whole second fanfic. I I assume the author wrote a sequel about the background of that ribbon. I'm sure. I mean, it just seemed very important. (laughs) <laughs> it does get a lot more description than a lot of things do in this fan fiction. Right. <laughs> well, it's relatively short. We're looking at, it's a 28-page story, you know, in the, the scanned thing, um, scanned copy. Like, it's a 28 pages in the zine also, what am I saying? And mm-hmm. they're, they're dense-ish pages. Like, it's fairly close set type on a typewriter. Um, but that still doesn't make it kind of, you know, a super long story. No, there's also um, three separate illustrations, so. That that take up space, that's true. Yeah. And a lot of page breaks, they're not very big page breaks, but they have this nice little uh, loopy flourish in them, which is kind of cute. Yeah, that was nice. Uh, I should be clear, uh, I don't mean that nothing gets described. I mean that when there is some very good description in this, but there are also some things which seem like obvious details that get almost no description whatsoever and feel like they would be important to really understanding what's going on in the scene. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I feel like this could have used a little more cohesion and like an editor going through and being like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, because right. like, I was kind of like, I they, the author clearly knows exactly what's happening and they're trying to make things concise. But this happens to me in my writing all the time. I drop details that are actually important because I forget the audience doesn't know them. Yeah. I I found myself confused fairly often about how things fit together in the first half of this fanfic. Because there's, if we're going kind of chronologically with these flashbacks, there's like one last kind of flashback that leads up to the situation about why he's along with Rig here in the castle to begin with. And... Basically, he had gone into a community, you know, been welcomed as a traveler, that sort of thing. Um, and accidentally, but even though I think he's there for a sinister purpose, isn't he? Ray? No, he's on the run. He's on the run at that point. that's, That's the entirety of it. He just really wants to get some food for his horse, who I'm assuming is a cyborg. Not really mentioned. Uh... We should just assume all the horses, (laughs) yeah. It's a little bit, it's again, it's a little bit vague. We do get one part of the description in the sort of fairy tale segment where the horse is described as being made out of iron, and then all the other horses, I think, are just described as 
horses or bay or geldings or still not a lot of description on those. Still, it's all right. I can assume it's a cyborg. Yes. <laughs> I think it probably isn't, but we should assume that it is. Just <laughs> not quite sure that follows logically, but I'm willing to go I mean, along I- with it. I want to imagine there's like squirrels running up the tree in the background and they're like, you know, cyborg squirrels. I, I want to imagine that the only cyborgs are horses for no really understandable reason. It's not like the humans were like, we have more utility for cyborg horses. They're just like born that way. <laughs> well, any of it these is... cyborg creatures would have probably been originally developed by the nobles. So I guess so. I can Where's probably this... come up with a reason why a vampire needs cyborg squirrels running around. I, I could probably <laughs> find something. <laughs> Well, that's your job for the next fanfic you write, Amato. Explain the cyborg <laughs> squirrels. Uh, tell it from their perspective. Right. That's certainly the sort of fanfiction that I would want to read. So <laughs> I'm really trusting that at least someone that listens to this will get on that. Well, the point is, Ray's in this community, and you know he's just passing through, and they're they're hospitable until he accidentally, in like a moment of panic, you know shows off his mutant power. And he, he doesn't have full control over it. He has pretty good control over it by the time he's an adult, but, like, panic or surprise can still set it off. He, like, teleports himself a little bit. And he ends up getting subdued, basically. Like, he gets knocked out. And then it turns out that this guy, Rig, who is also in the community, is a professional hunter hired by these scared townspeople to go after the Baron. And Rig identifies... Ray as a potential asset to drag along with him and kind of like handcuffs him to him, right? Which prevents Ray from um, kind of teleporting away because uh, he can only carry so much mass. There's actually a lot of attention paid to the detail of how his teleportation worked and like why he couldn't teleport away in certain situations. And even talking about how he learned to control it, but not enough or how he should have controlled it better. I kind of liked that as, like, I don't know, the mechanics of his ability were very strong in this. This is certainly an important detail to add into your plot, because it (laughs) sort of answers the question that's burning in everyone's mind about why your character, who supposedly has teleportation powers, didn't just teleport out of every scenario. But it's also done pretty organically, so I have to salute the author on that particular point. I agree with that, yeah. Like, you know... uh, for example, when once they've fallen into the oubliette, uh, Rig sort of keeps bothering him about why he doesn't get them out of there, and he has a sort of answer about like going through stone would be like suffocating and dying, and it's just too dense, and it flows pretty naturally, to be entirely honest. Yeah, like yeah. the fact that you could teleport through wood more easily than stone makes total sense. And I think the tension of them trapped in the oubliette, and then kind of creatures start coming after them in sort of waves. It's like a tower defense game over here, except, I mean, not quite, but kind of. Because they're (laughs) definitely, definitely getting played with. Like, they're not just being dispatched because that would be boring for whoever is, you know, responsible for their fates up there, or interested in their fates up there. And what do we have? It's like some sort of bats first, or... um, what am I remembering? Hmm. Well, we've caught up to the present day in the fanfic, right? This is like where he's at and flashbacking from, basically. Yes, um, yeah. 
And it's actually at this point in the story, there were a lot of jumps before this, but now it's sort of like we have all the information and we're just moving forward with the narrative. Oh, it should be noted about the jumps before we move on. There's at least some implication that uh, because when they fell into the oubliette, Ray broke his leg pretty badly. Uh, this is sort of implied that this is just sort of his consciousness trailing off the things that have happened to him in his past. Oh, yeah. And that at least does something to explain why it's such a broken up narrative. Uh, does not make it that much more readable, unfortunately. Uh, but there is at least some narrative reason behind the choice of having all of these separated segments which flow together a little bit awkwardly. At least they yeah. make sense by the end. That's what I appreciated. But yeah, you're right. It kind of fits with the theme and the tone that he's kind of just like, you know, he's stuck there and he's just like thinking of these random things and he might be drifting in or out of consciousness. And I found the part with the first creatures that kind of come after them down there and they're not actually fully described, so I'm having trouble remembering them. Ah. The first <laughs> descended as a wave, nasty, chittering, and squealing dark things, perhaps knee-high and all nasty teeth and claws graced with a putrid stench. Oh, stench, excuse me. They were more revolting than fearsome. That feeling of terror had not receded, had in fact grown stronger, but these scrabbling abominations weren't the source of it. Rig was frying them by the score, and as quick as they were, a pile of their coarse-furred bodies was beginning to grow around his own feet. But, you know, they they do do damage and such. Yeah. There's... It's interesting. I kind of like this... Uh, you're right in that, like, kind of tower defense, but, you know, even just like a D&D campaign, like the waves of the low-level enemies coming at you at, at first. And... Yeah, it also sort of fits in with what we know about the character of the Baron, Magnus Lee, in that he is so tired and bored of the world that he's just <laughs> looking for a source of entertainment, however he can possibly find it. Right, yeah. I, I like that this has, like, such a tropey feel, but, like, it's, it all still makes sense. Like, there's an explanation for everything. Yeah. Because there's, like, a second wave of, like, mostly ethereal, you know, creatures. And I think the fact that, like... You know, it's dark, and he doesn't, he's not in his fully right mind, neither is Rig, and they literally don't know what the hell the various things are coming at them. Like, we never get, you know, a single word. It's like, oh, these are, you know, wraiths or anything like that. It's just kind of a description of kind of what they sort of look like and what they're kind of doing, at least as far as they can tell. I think that's pretty well done, too. It's also kind of like Lovecraftian. It's like, what are these horror abominations? We can't even describe them. Yeah. Um, it also... Yeah fits with what we know about humans in this world and that they they don't necessarily go that far outside of their communities. They don't necessarily know what everything is, even if they're soldiers and they go around and like, do that as their job. You can very easily run into something that is fully and completely unknown just because that's sort of how the world works, I guess. And that, fit again, fits with what we know about this world from the movie, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they're breaking into the Baron's castle, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Dilapidated, falling apart, melty yeah. uh, house thing. So he could have as many weird critters in here that the world has never seen as you want, is my impression. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, that fits with the movie, uh, where you've got <laughs> D cutting through scores and scores of just whatever creature designs 
anyone wanted to put in. Yeah. It's just <laughs> fun that way. Yeah. What's not fun is this happening to the characters themselves. There's like a third wave. There's like these like baboon creatures things, you know, they have to fight off. And, you know, they're, they're just, they, the intention is to, to toy with them and it's totally working. Like they are not calm. They're getting more and more freaked out, more and more, you know, like overwhelmed, like mentally. It's like he describes towards the end here, uh, very after he sees like the greenish light coming from above from like whoever's watching him um very suddenly and very completely that knot of terror in him uncoiled like a thousand snakes striking at all of his vital organs at once and nearly stopping his heart um as he just like gets a glimpse of something that terrifies him which might be a, i don't know like that it's a vampire up there i guess yeah. um it, it's just well sold that like this is it's completely overwhelming and they're they're totally not equipped mentally to handle this in the slightest. But, yeah, I like that because they've been dealing with this harsh world, but it implies that this is crazier and harsher and weirder. Yeah. They do put up enough of a fight that Baron Magnus or whatever does kind of order that they be taken up above. And, you know, when, once these people are serious about coming and grabbing them, they can't actually fight them off. Like, they never they never could have if they. that's really what their captors had wanted to do with them. And Rig immediately starts groveling and being like, oh, my lord, like, I brought you this mutant as a present because maybe you like mutants? I don't know. And my, the Baron just kills him, you know, in short order. Yeah. But then but then Ray tries to, like, fight back and also, like, escape, and he's still totally in just fight or flight. You know, he's not, like, thinking this through or anything. But it leads to this, like, really tense kind of, like, almost escape scene. Yeah, I I like the description here. He just phases through the floor and he's like panicking and trying to get air and like doesn't know what to do. And then at the very end of it, the Baron grabs the chain and pulls him out and it, it says like a fish on a line. And I was like, yeah. oh, you can just visualize that, like just like him plucking him out of the stone. And what's also really good is that kind of phasing description because... You know, this is something Ray does not like to do, going into solid matter when he's not sure, like, you know, what he's doing exactly, because, you know, he enters, quote, a world where neither sound nor light existed. There's, like, the description of, like, once he's in there, it's just, like, you just keep going, and going through stone is really slow, but he just has to hope that he's going to get to the other side, and then he's just, like, yanked back. They also do a really good job of describing uh, Ray's mental state, as they do frequently, and you mentioned the, like, uncoiling snakes uh, which was previously a description of, of Ray's psyche upon seeing the vampires. Uh, but, you know, like, in this escape sequence, they do a good job of describing the sort of terror of, uh, of this attempted escape, and that the only thing that was really propelling him is that there was, in his mind, a worse nightmare that he was trying to escape from than dying, suffocating completely entombed in stone. Right. Yeah, quite a description. And this also ties into what you were saying, Chris, about the motivations of the Baron, which is, like, he's he's entertained enough by this, you know, this person who, like, was still trying to fight and, you know, still trying, like, actually, like, strikes him in his, like, process of escaping or whatever. He's entertained enough by this novelty that he basically orders him, you know, taken care of and treated and kept. 
Yeah, he's entertained. I think that's the best way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least, you know, yeah. Even if it's not like, oh, yes, I'm laughing. This is so much fun. It's like, this is a non-zero amount of interesting, which is enough for the Baron. Because he's so bored. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so then, you know, you get the scene like where he wakes up and he's been treated to and like he's, you know, in some room that that is, you know, smells of dust and age and disuse. But like it's it's apparently I forget what it says exactly, but he's like someone was in charge of of clearly here of like taking care of flesh and blood mortal creatures like on an occasion where they might need to. Yeah, like he really doesn't want to know the details. <laughs> yeah, I think it was something on the lines of like, how, well, he was naked, and mm-hmm. they tended his wounds and like brought him food and stuff. But yeah, I think he just didn't know what what he wanted to know what the creatures were or what they were doing to him. Yeah, because he didn't want like the Lovecraft abominations taking off his clothes, which makes sense. And you know he's freaked out, but he. And, you know, he's he's in this room and, like, he, he kind of gives up. He has that feeling of powerlessness is the word that it uses here. Again, where it's like he can't risk escaping. He doesn't know where he is. It seems like maybe he's not going to be killed immediately. And even though he's still terrified, he ends up falling, just falling asleep there in the room. And half over here is a conversation between the Baron and Bamika, where basically the Baron's saying, like, yeah, I'm giving him to you. Like, he's yours now. Um, mm-hmm. He's going to be a, a servant of yours or whatever. Um, it should be noted a large part of his motivation for remaining in this room during this time period is that he's still recovering from a very badly broken leg uh, that sort of left him so weak and sort of the the fight and the other wounds that he accrued there have, have left him so weak that he can sort of barely stand and he does, you know, there's a fairly long description of him you know passing in and out of consciousness for a while in this room and then trying to get up and make a uh, navigate around the room see if he could get out the door or if there were any windows which there ended up not being which makes sense because <laughs> vampires yeah yeah um and also he's got a fever so i, I like this because it, it brings the pacing into a good spot because now he's trapped and you kind of feel trapped with him because it's like that prison description, I did this and I did this and I tried to get out. And eventually, a woman comes to see him. Yeah, we get the contractually obligated vampire seduction scene. And yeah. <laughs> I guess what I like about it is that we don't get a whole lot of, you know, Lamika's perspective. But she doesn't seem to give a shit about him. This is just kind of like what you do. Like she's, you know, at the very least, you know, kind of like seductively coming on him and then feeding on him. You know, it, it's not, it's not explicit exactly all what's going on, but it's just like, you, you get the feeling that like, this is not a big deal for her in the slightest, or at least I did. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Like, so eventually he like, kind of becomes a servant of the Baron and there's some description of like how Ramika treats him in their intercourse scene or whatever there and and then later on where it's like she's just kind of I don't know how is it described how she treats him later on it was like with malice or contempt or like 
envy? I don't even know. Um, I think that I think the implication of that uh, later on scene is that she ended up sort of being disappointed in what he was, in right. that he had just gone along with all of this. That there was some implication that she wanted something else from him, and that that was something that she wasn't going to be able to get. He was just going to be another servant of the Baron, although a slightly more interesting one than most. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we want to say? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Anything we want to say about that scene? Um, I would say that 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 sort of interaction, that sort of idea of how Ramek is treating him gives at least a little bit of um, God, what what is the word that I'm looking for? Uh, is it like foreshadowing for the? Yeah, I, I would or? suppose that that's a fine enough way of putting it. But it it implies a little bit of context to how she eventually treats D in the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, after that, you know, they sort of like. They make him drink something, and you know she just, uh, she you know has has Ray follow her, and they he realizes that, like he could at this point try to escape. He's like feeling so much better. He's kind of like been healed or like slightly strengthened by this whatever combination of things has been done to him by the vampires, and they've like they're making him a little bit stronger, so he's a more useful servant while still in no way being a threat to them. Um. And he realizes there's a sort of test in that, like, he could now try to escape if that was what he was trying to do. Like, they're not, he's not bound, he's not, you know, imprisoned exactly when he's following her. And when, when he realizes that, he kind of has that choice. And I think that's, that scene here, oh yeah, Lamika, she, she looked at him in thin amusement as he realized this, that like he was being given some measure of trust. You have passed the first part of the test. The final one lies within. And that final one is him kind of meeting the Baron, I suppose. What's the what's the test itself? Yeah, I'm looking for that. Um, I don't know, maybe it was just, yeah, to meet him and, like, accept that he was now his servant or something. Um yeah. And here's the scene you were talking about, Chris. Um, there's light smudging the sky as he's nearing the chamber of the Baron, right? And he sees dawn. He sees dawn coming slightly. He hadn't thought to see sunrise again. Now he feared it, uncertain. This is page 125 from the scan, which is like page 26 in the file. Laughter, mocking and brittle. Facing her, he once again could read so clearly the failed expectation that now became cruelty, a desire to hide weakness that he might not know and use it to her disadvantage. No, no alliance for this solitary, lonely predator. Like, she's not going to take him into her her trust or whatever. And she saw it too, saw the change that had taken place in him, no longer befuddled and confused, but seeing clearly and pitying what he saw. I'm not following some of this a little bit, but what she says is, what it says is she lashed out in retaliation. You, 
She packed incredible amounts of venom and scorn into so simple a word. You, rule, a base-born creature equal to noble lineage? Laughter peeling again, derogatory, but shallow and false. And so I guess what's happening here is that he thinks for a moment, he's like, wait, have I been made into a vampire? Like, do I need to fear the dawn? And she's mocking him for being so presumptuous as to think that, like, they might have, like, you know, picked up this, you know, mutant wanderer guy and elevated him to what she, what's, what she thinks is, you know, a infinitely superior form of being. Yeah. And that's her character in the movie, too, that she's like, you know, she has a Lovecraftian panic just at knowing that she is not 100% pure-blooded vampire, mm-hmm. you know. Um, horror of horrors. I like this, too, though, because it kind of, there's this subtle way in which she's a little bit conflicted. Like, no alliance, you know, that implies, like, oh, she kind of wanted, she did want something from him. She wanted, like, maybe even a friend in, in not in maybe the way we think of a friend, but because of how he's acting, she's like, nope. And then she also says, it says her laughter is derogatory, but shallow and false. Um, yeah. Which I liked. It was like, she's being derogatory, but maybe that's only for appearances. And like in her heart, she feels something different. There were just little cues. Yeah, and there's a little bit more explained about, you know, what she's saying, like, yeah, of course we didn't make you into a freaking vampire. And, like, we learn a little bit more about how they changed him. Oh, that, you know, he's going to be, like, a little bit stronger. He's going to age more slowly. Ah, uh, here it is. Change, yes. He would age more slowly. That would make him a valuable servant that much longer. No need to find another soon. His perception, strength, and reactions heightened, but to nothing near their own level. So does a man collar a dog and pet it at its gate, his gate to watch because of its keener senses. It's a good metaphor. And um, that also ties into the part of his character design where he's like wearing kind of this necklace or collar around his neck, right? Yeah, it does. That's the thing that the Baron gives him. Or like, I guess um, Ramika gives him. To, uh, one of them gives him, but it's a sign of their control over him. Yeah. And yeah. so, and at the end here, kind of like a this ending where he ends up in the library. Um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, there's just a nice little bit where he's like reading a book. There's very few books; they're crumbling around, even in his hands. It's kind of showing this is his new world. And he closed the book with a snap. Fine bits of hemp paper falling like dry snow. He was serving outside. The shadows lengthened. Had he not noticed it, he would have felt the pull of night in his blood anyway. Ray Ginsey picked up the candelabra and made his way through the dark stone corridors, wending downstairs, grown indifferent to the gibbering of the stray night haunts <laughs> unless they got in his way. And it goes on. It's like, as always, he'd be in attendance, waiting, watching, waiting opportunity, watching for misstep, for the one chance when tables turned, for one day's rule. Which should well, be noted, should... yeah, the book that he was reading, we get a couple of details about it. And well, it uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what is it, Chris? Well, the the book is heavily implied to be Paradise Lost, and yeah, it's the, definitely Paradise Lost. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> uh, the the one day's rule would be better to rule in heaven than to or better to yeah. rule in hell than to serve in heaven is the the quote that he's referencing. Right to rule one day in hell than to serve in heaven for. 
I forget if it's a hundred thousand years. Now, I'm not sure that that title and metaphor quite works out because he doesn't have any option to rule in heaven in any metaphorical or literal sense to begin with. But what he is doing here is he's committing to being a good servant, biding his time, and waiting for an opportunity to elevate his station. And in this story, it's, you know, not, it's not 100% clear whether that just means to him that he wants to become a vampire or whether he might also, like, you know, take an opportunity off the Baron or whatever if he had an opportunity. Right. I I do think he, the implication there is that he would have, had he not gone to the dark side, had an opportunity to die and then serve in heaven, you know. But anyway, go uh, ahead. Okay. To, well, to, yeah, by dying, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how you end up in heaven. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe I'm remembering too much of the summary of the books, but there's this is sort of like Christianity is no longer a thing. It's been forgotten by everyone. The crosses are just around like as a oh, right. as a remnant. okay well i don't know then anyway (laughs) yeah and so that's basically the arc of the story and i've got to say i watched a couple of like i I watched like the main ray fight scene and such from vampire hunter d in japanese with portuguese subtitles um (laughs) interesting that's how you do i just found a little bit curious that like in this in this story, I get kind of a gritty sense from him. Like, he's kind of a gritty mercenary type. Like, he's, you know, he's, like, from a rough background, and he's, like, been kind of, like, fighting and serving and doing stuff, and he's just trying to get by and survive. Whereas in the 1985 Vampire Hunter D movie, he talks in kind of a slightly pretentious, you know, oh, you know, confident, noble person sort of way. And at first, when I was reading this, I was like, well, that's weird. It seems like they kind of missed his characterization there. But now that I'm talking through with it with you two, that actually seems thematically consistent that, you know, Vampire Hunter D does not take place immediately after this prequel story. It takes place yeah. some large measure of time yes. after it. And yes. so the idea that he would be kind of putting on some of the, like, pretensions of the nobles that he's serving and kind of seeking to be raised to the level of makes a lot of sense. Certainly some of his character in the movie is him sort of being an honor-bound warrior sort of ideal, right? Like, he starts out his fight with D by declaring his name. Right, right. And (laughs) when D beats him, he spends all of his effort on attempting to get, like, a, a rematch to get revenge for this terrible loss to his, uh, dignity something. Yeah, and I think I said before, I kind of like how this story explains how he's, like, um, technically subservient through not being a noble to these other people, but, like, waiting for his day to rule. Like, he's actually pretty arrogant about it. He doesn't necessarily think they're better than him, and he's he's probably spent a long time after this fan fiction, like, building up his, his idea of himself in his mind. It's like right. That does try to kill the Baron in the movie. Uh, Not very effectively in the slightest. I don't quite... um, It's a lot of build-up of this character in this fanfiction about how he's going to plot and plan until he eventually... I mean, like, he does try to use the time-bewitching incense on the Baron, so, I mean, I guess that's a plan, but he gets dispatched pretty handily, so, I mean, I feel like uh, 
the eventual delivery of the whole story that we're given with both this fan fiction and the movie is a little bit anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it is. But like, if you look at this fanfic, it's like it's an origin story for Ray. So we kind of already know that it's anticlimactic. Fair point. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it's one of those stories where you know what's going to happen to the character, but that's okay. Anything else specifically we want to talk about? Um, like any specific moments before we talk about things that we did not think worked well and then things that we want to praise? I think I've said a lot already. Okay. Well, in terms of things that didn't work that well, I just like to repeat that I feel like the first half of this is pretty bumpy to read. It was kind of hard for me to get into because there's a little bit too much jumping around. It's like flashing back and forth in time is fine, but it wasn't, it's kind of like there was one too many time periods, I feel like, for me to kind of juggle. Mm-hmm. They also cut between them of like, at at a, at most about a page per a time period. So you get sort of like establishing, established in the scene a little bit, and then immediately cut away, just start as interesting things start to happen, just as soon as you're invested in the character in this right. time period again. And then you might even, like, come back to that time period, and you'll be, like, in the same scene almost, or, like, a different amount of time will have passed. That that was very hard to kind of parse. There's also a little bit of uh, the descriptions of the scenes as they're getting established is a bit spartan very frequently. Uh, yeah. You at least yeah. get a sense of what time period you're in pretty fast, but you don't necessarily get a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, is that all you wanted to say about that, Amato, or did you have more? That was That's my main complaint. Is there okay. anything that you two want to complain about? I mean, honestly, that's my main complaint, too. Um, the other thing I did note, that at first this didn't bother me, but when it's the story started to become more dense and have fewer page breaks, I picked up on the fact that there's a lot of hyphens being used. Um, I don't think necessarily in a bad way. I just, I'm sort of like, it's often that a sentence will end in like a hyphen and then the next line, and then it'll go to the next line. But sometimes it'll happen, you know, mid-sentence. It's not being used consistently. So that's kind of maybe more of a pet peeve. But I'm just kind of wondering what the author was trying to achieve with that. There's definitely some copy editing that could have been done. There's also a lot of typos. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you're typing things on a typewriter and submitting them to a fanzine in 1988, like, it's a different environment from, like, having a we- like a word processor with a spell checker, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's why I wasn't that phased by the typos. I was like, you know, they could have, they probably noticed them and were just like, oh, too much work. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah. Which I approve of. Yeah. Perfect is the enemy of the getting it into the fanzine to publish. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, but anyway, I was just, I was thinking the the hyphens are probably also kind of a copy editing thing that like you could have fixed up if you had done another full editing pass. Yeah, I mean they're used so often. I feel like there's it's definitely a stylistic choice that's meant to achieve something. And maybe I'm not the, not the smart one here, uh, but cause <laughs> I can't figure out what they're trying to achieve with it. So. I think like they could have gone one or the other. They could either have these very frequent scene shifts or they could have had hyphens together. It's like, it's a lot of formal elements and I don't think they all work 
even though I think they're all very close to working. Hmm. Chris, any different complaint? Oh, um, this is actually quite related, and you're right, there's, you know, it's hard to do copy passes on this, so I, I don't want to criticize it too much, but there were also a lot of sort of garden path sentence varieties of, of gram- mm. grammatical, not exactly error, but certainly, um, muddling the the meaning of a sentence where you'd like have something at the very end of a sentence after a long amount of description mm-hmm. refer to a subject which was at the start of the sentence before uh, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know that i have exactly uh, a good example but they they happen it's like a sort of Proustian thing, which is again something that you can make work, but with everything else, like I agree with you, because with everything else, it's a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. But moving on to praise, anyone want to start? Um, I think I praised this quite a bit already, but I will. I will start with, um, except for those like kind of experimental notes that didn't always work. I just think this is, is really well written and I wasn't sure it was going to be when I started, but when you get to the end and everything falls into place, you can tell the author had all the pieces of the story in mind. And we've read a couple, um, particularly well done sentences or, um, you know, pieces of the story. So there's some really strong bits of writing in here that we read out. Um, I like that. And as far as I don't know why you choose Ray for a story, but if you do, this was, good you know like (laughs) it worked yeah i mean this might mix it a little bit of criticism but yeah they they actually managed to make this character who is fairly flat and fairly minor and to be entirely honest i would not have written a story about they do manage to make him (laughs) interesting enough like you you follow along the story and you at least care what's going on. So that's that's a lot to do with <laughs> someone so otherwise milk toast. Right. And they give him a, a backstory that I feel like would might have been too much for something that wasn't Vampire Hunter D, but fits the tone of Vampire Hunter D enough to make him sympathetic. Yeah. And speaking of tone, um it's it's similar to what you said, Tori. Like once the story gets going in the second half it's like really firing on all cylinders and a lot of that is the tone like it has this strong the author's really interested in getting that dread and that fear and that like psychological breakdown especially in like the progression of of the being trapped and being tested and being like hauled out like a fish and you know all that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it works really well so that imagery i feel like is going to stick with me oh yeah the fish on the line one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was like really, really happy with the reading experience once we got to that point. Yeah, I mentioned this a bit earlier, but the descriptions of Ray's psychology as he goes through it, you get like a, a lot of perception of his mental state and a lot of the descriptions of those are, are really good. Um, like even at the beginning when he's, sitting in the bottom of the oubliette with his broken leg and Rig is there yelling at him, uh, you get like this long description of how close he gets to hysterically laughing about the situations they found themselves in. And that really does play into the sort of Lovecraftian horror elements of this really well, because it keeps coming up in this sort of 
nagging fear at the edges of his mind because he can somehow sense the vampires nearby into the uncoiling of snakes, which was, again, a pretty well-utilized metaphor in one of those good descriptions. Uh, And even into the end where, you know, he's sort of become resigned to his state, but you still get a lot of... or resigned to his fate, but you still get a lot of description of what's going on and how he feels and how he's reacting to that situation. You know, resigned to his state works well, too, because, you know, he can't phase through the wall, (laughs) so he's resigned to being solid. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, I'm thinking about Junji Ito. Have both of you read some Junji Ito manga? Lots. Uh, It's one of those things that I don't, that I love to read and also hate to read. (laughs) So I'm thinking of like Uzumaki, Mm -hmm. okay? And you've got the main character, Kirie. And reading through that series, one of my reactions is just like this horror and disbelief at her. Because I'm Mm -hmm. like, once you get a few chapters in, it's like, how are you not just screaming and banging your head against a wall at this point? Because like, that's what I would be doing. Like, there's too much horror and like horrific shit going on around you. Why are you just kind of like perturbed or possibly somewhat scared rather than undergoing a complete total mental breakdown? And so it was very satisfying reading some horror here where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the protagonist can't handle this shit. Like, who could? Yeah, I actually like, think... He... Oh, go on. <laughs> like, hu- humans humans react really badly when they're under this much stress. And so, like, somehow it was just very satisfying there, in that sense. I actually think that's what makes it easier to read this story than, for instance, Junji Ito. It's like, sometimes it's just the reactions... To me, it's just the reactions of humans that make his world so alien. In this story, yeah, there was sure. literally warmth coming from the fact that the characters felt fear, you know? Yeah. Like, they're human. Terror. Yeah. Right. And I should note that this is something that often bothers me, that the, the way that terror is dealt with in Lovecraftian stories is something that often bothers me because of how close insanity appears to be to people. You're like, view something that's a non-Euclidean geometry and just suddenly go mad from the revelation. I don't know about you, but I quite like non-Euclidean mm-hmm. geometries. Doing math in them <laughs> but, is actually you know, fun for me. <laughs> you've never seen them in front of your eyes. They right, drive but you like, mad. I don't know. I imagine it would be a lot more... Um, it's it would be more less terror than yeah. fascination, honestly. I, I, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Again... I, I know that it would be something outside of the scope of what I believe the world to be, but I don't know that I would immediately become a gibbering mass if that were to happen. <laughs> I think very few people are would be driven to that point by that, but I think that's the difference between you and H.P. Lovecraft. So <laughs> Yeah, okay, fair point. One of the many. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. I mean... Uh, oh, I think you should, yes. Yeah, you should. Horror authors, they're... It's reflections what they fear, and I think it's pretty clear that Lovecraft feared things that were outside of his realm of comprehension. Like Hispanic people. Yes. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think that I think we can bring this to a close then. Uh, thanks for 
picking up a random fanfic VHS from Blockbuster and popping it in the fanfic reader <laughs> and experiencing this with me, like it's the old days. Yeah. <laughs> now I just gotta return it. Yeah. No, remember to rewind first. Uh, right. Right. Wouldn't yeah, want I'm the next year to start the in the top. middle of the fanfic. <laughs> I'm rewinding it as we speak. I'm scrolling to the top of the PDF. Alright, we're good. Alright. Then this was episode 83 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective mm. for One Day's Rule by was Julie Froelich. 83, Amato? Am I wrong? It's 93. Oh, it's 93. Mm-hmm. Wow. We are getting up on 100 here, aren't we? I told you. I'm sorry. Episode 93 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective for One Day's Rule by Julie Froelich, illustrated by Nemo Han, both of them award-winning in 1988 in the Q Awards. You can find a link to my scan of this story at bit.ly slash rfr rule, R-U-L-E. And by the way, I could only find one other reference to this story on the internet, other than like, you know, the FanQ Awards noting that they won awards, right? And that reference was in somebody's poetry adaptation of Vampire Hunter D. Wow. They reference in the author's notes, having read this story, and it informing their reading of the meaning of the necklace, like whatever it is. That um, that Ray wears. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna read that next, right? I mean, we could. <laughs> I'm looking at it right here. It's uh, Vampire Hunter D, a verse adaptation by Catherine B. Kruzberg, hosted on altvampireswithay.net. Oh, the vampires with the Ys. Yeah, those are the those are the special ones. <laughs> Written in 1995. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Does it does it still have an E though? It does. Um, Otherwise, I'd be vampires. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's definitely the better way to spell vampires. Someday I'm gonna go into the understand the etymology of the word vampire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I uh, could probably do this in spite of the fact that I do not care that much about the topic. Uh, particularly, I'm not as into it as these people clearly are. Right. Mm-hmm. But I like etymology a lot, so there you go. for that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album, and you can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at retrofanfic or uh, Reddit at fanficretrospective. Send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. Or you could leave comments or reviews on whatever service you're using to listen to this podcast. Our native service is Podbean, but I don't think it really matters. That's what Podbean wants me to say, right? That it doesn't matter what uh, service you use? I don't think Podbean cares. Seems pretty <laughs> oh, chill. They're chill as long as we just pay for their hosting. There you go. <laughs> I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Chris. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care. We may not all be familiar. But... Yeah. The D stands for Dracula. <laughs> <laughs>